My name is Matt Weston. Tonight, I'm joined by the biggest, the fattest, the drummers on the mall, our good friend BFD. How are you doing tonight, man? Man, how about that Super Bowl? I wasn't really expecting that kind of a high-scoring affair. Were you, Big Matt? Oh, oh boy. You know, it was such a big game, and some say it's the biggest game, actually. And uh, I still can't get over how raucous that one was. Uh, and the weird thing about it, too, like watching it, you know, as it was happening, being with some people and all that, you kind of felt like in the fourth quarter, you know, the bell would come off, the pants would get dropped, and, like, they'd really go at it. And then it just kind of never happened, you know? <laughs> like, it never hit that – I was about to say that spot. No, I'll just it. it never hit that spot you thought it was going to hit. Like, it just – like, it never got to that point. And uh, we're like, you know, when you're watching a great game and things, like, or just feel like they're bubbling, you know? And like it feels like you're like in some you know you know that you're watching something incredible. Like, this is really great. This this feels good. And uh, I'm just gonna keep saying things like that. And then you know, you know like, you're watching like a great game at that moment because what you feel like this game I I never felt that at all. It was just like it was fine. It was like a like a nice Sunday mass, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I and, you know, I, I realize I'm getting off the script. I don't know if you want want to go back a little bit, but. You know, there's, I've seen so many people complaining about the game, and i got to say, I liked the game. I, I thought the fourth quarter was lame. That didn't really meet expectations. I think it's because I kind of had the same, is that I, you know, expected the pants to come off. I like the way you put that because, you know, when I take my pants off, it's usually when things really get, get humping, so to speak. And uh, so I kind of expected the same, but it just didn't happen. That part was disappointing. But I thought the first three quarters are great. Yeah. Yeah, like, I was watching some friends, or I guess a Super Bowl party, you can say. And, you know, I, I said, like, you know, I'm enjoying this game. It's cool how we expected it to be one way after the super offensive, super cool, postmodern uh, defenses can't tackle. Everybody scores all the time. Nothing matters. Football season. So, you have, like, a, a low-scoring game in the Super Bowl, I think, was really kind of perfect in a lot of ways. And I was told uh, I only like it because nobody else likes it. And I was also told, uh, why are you the way that you are? So I think like you, like you and I and the other people on this planet who enjoy the game are probably like the, you know, the 3% of people. And I think it means more about us just being, you know, very awful credence who have zero value to give to the world and just uh, like misery for the sake of misery. Or it, it means nothing at all. We just like the low score football game. Take it as you will. Yeah, and you know, People say that, and I, I hear them, I get it. Um, I will say this. See, part of it, again, you got, you know, I, I, my background, again, is, and I like the defensive football, and I like the front seven defensive football kind of stuff. And, and to see how the, the Rams' defensive line play, kind of with the exception of Dante Fowler, who is too bad, because he's really, I think he could have been a much better player than he turned out to be. He's just kind of out there at this point and creating penalties. But, you know, aside from Helm, they had a really great game. And Wade did a great job of getting Aaron Donald on one-on-ones and Michael Brockers, Michael Brockers and Sue had fine games. They were just that front seven was just a lot of fun to watch. And I enjoy that, you know. I don't need to see Patrick Mahomes throwing for 585 yards every game. Every once in a while, I was like, oh, man, look at this defense. Look how they're playing. I had a lot of fun watching it. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, that's, what's, that's what's nice thing about football is that I think there's something for everybody there. That if you like scoring and catching and jumping and running, there's all that. And there's also the other, part, the other parts of it, like how New England's defensive backs play the ball in the air, uh, Aaron Donald's hand usage, how the New England manufactured interior, you know, pressure, all those sorts of things can also be enjoyed at like a maybe slightly, slightly deeper level than the pure aesthetic of yeah, I like it when the guys run fast and jump really high and throw the ball four and uh, score a lot of points. And this game didn't have that portion of it, but I think it had like a lot more of the the other stuff. 
And it's kind of, it was kind of like more of a you know, two and a half hour black and white movie uh, than it was a, you know, super fast, hot you know, action movie or whatever that comes out in July just to beat the heat and some air conditioning. And so it's going to be fun to go back and watch the coach's film and kind of see uh, the whole entire picture of it. Uh, whenever I actually work up the heart and uh, get the energy to do so, I will do it. It may not be tonight, but hopefully tomorrow, though. Yeah, I think this is one of those games it may, I may not go back and watch. I, it just, you know, I kind of I saw what I saw the first time around. I could go start getting into the real technical details of it. But, I, I mean, I think I'd rather, you know, I had my thrill. I'm happy. And now it's the offseason. I'm going to start doing my scouting and quarterback coming out. So that's where I'm going to focus my attention, I think. Yeah. Well, there's no more football. And also, I think with a game like this, you can really uh, learn more about death and what it means to be alive. And uh, the intricacies of the human spirit. You can really, really understand the nooks and crannies of everything that uh, life has to offer by going back and watching this thirteen three Super Bowl again. Right. I, I couldn't. You could not have put that more perfectly, morosely. Well done. Yeah, I like to see the the America's team of it be narrated by that German guy. I can't remember his name now. It is all the documentaries about the internet and the albino crocodile. And uh, that sort of thing. He should really do the, the America's team that they do for this one. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, so we're going to talk more about the Super Bowl. But first, since this is a Houston Texans podcast, as a partition, like this is like the ugly, like screwed up little arm or the conjoined, you know, teeth from a twin that was sucked up in the womb or like the boil on the back of a bus driver's neck. A portion of Battle Red Blog, but since this is a Texans podcast as part of a Texans site, uh, we do need to talk about the newest Houston Texans news, and then we'll talk more about the Super Bowl. So if you're going to listen, you can listen to this part and then turn it off if you don't want to actually go back and relive the Super Bowl again. So the big news is that the Houston Texans hired an offensive coordinator, and by hired, they promoted from within. Uh, Bill O'Brien Lifer, Tim Kelly, is a former Titans coach and assistant offensive line coach for the Houston Texans. And he could maybe, quite possibly, call plays. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. Bill O'Brien didn't say so. He said he's available and can do it if the opportunity comes along those lines where he's ready for the job to take on that role. I don't know. Nothing was really said about it. But So what are your thoughts on Tim Kelly, the Houston Texans' uh, newest offensive coordinator? I can't think of a better hire to promote to the offensive coordinator position than one, a guy who's never called an offensive play call in a, in a, in a game setting before. And number two, who was Ryan Griffin's position coach. I mean, that's kind of like the one, two of outstanding strategies to hire your offensive coordinator. The chances of, of Kelly calling plays is probably about right up there with mine. Bill O'Brien's not going to allow anybody else to play call. He's not. This is his ego is too far in it. You don't you don't promote a guy like Kelly, who is basically just the Bill O'Brien sycophant and has been for many years. You're not going to promote him and expect him to do anything because he doesn't know Jack when it comes to that perspective. So I have absolutely no hopes that a single thing is going to change offensively with this promotion. Yeah, I, I just don't know anything about the guy at all. Like the guy, just know kind of like you know that the offensive line has been bad mainly. I think mainly because of the coaching, because even with the talent they've added. And the fact that everybody that has left everybody that has left Houston has been better. Everybody that has arrived Houston has been worse. And also, you know, you have a tight ends group that, yeah, I mean, Ryan Griffin was bad even before Tim Kelly. Ryan Griffin has been bad since he came into the league as a six-round pick. Uh, I wouldn't put that onus entirely on him. Like, the Thomas guy, the, the Thomas brothers are all right this year too. But I think it's just more like, I don't know. Like, I think it's more if you're going to hire an offensive coordinator, uh, why not get somebody who probably – Seems like they make more of an impact on paper. Uh, something that kind of makes more sense, but I just don't really have any like big thoughts or opinions. So I think, like you're saying, Bill Bryant's still getting called the plays, and then just overall, like I just don't know enough about the guy to feel like I don't like it, and I don't know about him really at all to be excited for it. But at the same time, you know, somebody who went to see an offensive corner in Houston. Uh, I think it's good there is one here, but if Tim Kelly's good, if he has any impact on the team whatsoever, I really can't say. And so this is like a, you know, putting you know margarine on Wonder Bread right now analysis, but I just can't. I don't really feel anything at all from it, you know. Yeah, and, and as far as 
you know, I, I, I'm just reading the, the passage because I, I had to go to the mouthpiece of the team to go see what was said about him. And that, of course, is reading Pancakes' column on him. But uh, so Kelly had risen in the coaching reins under O'Brien from a graduate assistant at Penn State to offensive quality control. He has been an offensive coordinator before. Really? Where? But is regarded highly for his coaching acumen and people skills and adaptability. Okay, so I just want to focus. Let's look at the word adaptability. And, and Bill O'Brien aren't two words that I would call synonyms. Yeah, maybe. well, maybe that's why he got the job then, you know, all the adaptability. Uh, people, he's a people person. He's going to be coaching people. That's pretty important. See, now I like the hire a whole lot more. Thank you for... Oh, man, I screwed that up. Shiza. Man, I'm really excited for the Tim Kelly era. I'm excited for him, for the offense to be mediocre again next year and then have him get fired as a scapegoat. And then uh, Bill O'Brien just to take over and become the offensive coordinator again in 2021. That's how, and we'll, we're going to wind up 9-7 and seven out of the playoffs, and that's what's going to happen. And Bill O'Brien's still going to have all his defenders for some reason I still can't figure out. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you, you know, the Suns when you win football games, I guess. Oh no, the other the other move that happens is that Charles Robbins, Robinson at Charles Robbins, the former Seahawks quarterback coach, is now the new quarterback coach of the Houston Texans. Uh, after Sean Ryan left to go coach in Detroit, I don't know why Detroit loves Houston's leftovers, but they do. And then uh, Charles, so like Houston, New England is the Houston as Houston is to Detroit, I guess. But uh, he was also the quarterback's coach for Russell Wilson, and now he's going from being the Russell Wilson whisperer to being the Deshaun Watson whisperer. What do you think? Are you like this guy? Are you excited for him to coach Deshaun Watson? So just to, just to make sure we get it right, it's actually Carl Smith is his name. Carl, Carl Smith? Carl wow. Smith. I don't know where Charles – I wrote down Charles Robinson. I don't know where that came from. He's a Yahoo columnist, so maybe that you got it from his article. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I got from the Texans tweet, the, the Twitter, the tweet, the tweeter on there. I don't know. Maybe I just maybe Charles Robinson on the brain for some reason. Yeah. So uh, from the little bit that um, I asked my friend of mine who's a Seattle Seahawks fan and says he seems to be a good coach, seems to know what he's doing. It's also kind of cool that he's the father of Tracy Smith, the Texans assistant special teams coordinator. So you got the whole father-daughter thing rocking out there. I've got – you know, my friend said he seems to know what he's doing. That's a pretty good plug when you're a QB coach. You don't really know what they're doing in the background to help your quarterback. So there you go. That's my deep thought on Carl Smith. Good. I see. I like that. I like the analysis because one of the gripes I do have during this time of year, whenever coaching hires are made, it's like everybody has to have an opinion, even though they don't know anything at all about it. But they have to, you know, butt it and say something about it. And who knows anything at all about this guy? Who knows if he's good? Who knows if he's bad? It seems good. I don't know. But to be like, yeah, good hire. I like this one. This is a great one. I mean, unless I, – I don't know how you can come to that conclusion without just saying something just to say it. And it's okay to say, I don't know. This is another one. Like, I really don't know at all. Uh, Russell Wilson's a top-10 quarterback. He's really done a good job turning from being, like, an elusive guy who can deal with a really bad offensive line to being one of the best quarterbacks in football. And, hey, maybe it was because of uh, you know, his great quarterback's coach, and now he's in Houston. Or maybe Russell Wilson is just really good. It really doesn't matter who his quarterback's coach is. Who knows? But, yeah, I mean, I think that's a better way to say it. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's, it sounds nice. It sounds nice. And the reason I badmouth Kelly is because um... – you know, he, he was on you know, offensive line. He had a role with that. He had a role with the tight ends. And, yes, the Jordans had a pretty good year. But just the fact that Ryan Griffin has just been pure suck for so long with no improvement. You know, is that Griffin's fault? Is that the coach's fault? Is that the fact that, you know, I, I think, it's, getting I think, it's, dying? I think it's Griffin's fault. He's just yeah, been bad. He's, yeah, he's bad. And so I don't know. It's, it's easy to say, look, he hasn't done jack with that position. And the Jordans came out. The Jordans did about what they, you would expect them to do in their rookie season. I mean, did they really play above and beyond with your expectation? But the offensive line struggles, yeah, I just, I'm not real excited about it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. And uh, I guess the other big coaching news is that TJ Yates is an offensive assistant. Woo! Akeem Dents is a defensive assistant. And Brian Cushing is going to make people big and strong. 
and it's gonna be completely legal with whatever he does. Just don't question what he's doing. Just steal you know, my material, Matt. Yeah, I mean it's pretty. It's easy. It's it's Hugo Orchard on this material, and Anthony Weaver. And they're all joining Anthony Weaver as former Houston as former Houston Texans being on the coaching staff. Uh, does anything really jump out at all for you here? And also, are you kind of sad and disappointed that T.J. Yates can't be like a third-string quarterback called in Week 12 to pick up a spot star with the Houston Texans? Well, look, let's not take that off the table. Let's not be premature. Still might be a thing that happens. <laughs> it's a good point. It's a very good point. Um, no, I, I tell you, I will say that I'm excited about T.J. Yates. I mean, not only is it just, you know, the, the general man crush on T.J. Yates and his heroics as a Houston Texan, but the guy always seemed, and not only that, I mean, between his family and how he's acted, I mean, he's just been a great asset to the team. But there is always something sneak, sneaky smart about the guy. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just pure projection. But there always seemed to be something in his brain because he really didn't have the arm, the physical talent to be an NFL quarterback, and yet he found success doing it. So uh, I'm super excited to have him on the team. I'm hoping he can, we can see some, some sort of growth, like a Frank Reich-type growth with him. Uh, with you know a very similar quarterback with very similar skills, that's my hope and dreams for TJ Yates. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Yates is that I'm glad. I never want to watch Yates play quarterback after 2011, and he played way too much quarterback after 2011. And I'm glad. Hopefully, this is the end of him, and I never have to watch him play quarterback again because he's like a 50 overall Madden quarterback who just throws you know four yards short. Well, the one thing I am kind of disappointed about, though, is that Case Keenum carved out uh, a starting quarterback career somehow because he could have ended up with Case Keenum offensive coordinator, just like the Cowboys have with Kellen Moore now. And, uh, you know, that, that would have been fun to have. I really wanted to see Case hold the clipboard. But maybe one day we can see something like that in another, you know, seven years or maybe even two years. We'll see how this year goes in Denver for him. Yeah, once he's done throwing those hot air balloons that he calls passes, I, we, there's a good chance I think we'll see him as an offensive assistant pretty soon. Yeah, just keep bringing everybody in. I don't know why Andre – well, I guess Andre Johnson probably doesn't coach wide receivers, otherwise he'd be here too. Uh, yeah, and also, like, I'm excited for whenever training camp starts just to see how big everybody's biceps get, uh, hanging out Brian Cushing all summer long. And, and they're back uh, me. <laughs> yeah, and the back knee and the Adam's apples and the helmets, like how much bigger their helmets are. And, this <laughs> and like, it's going to be really funny that, like, if one player fails a PE te- PED test after this hire, or, like, if, like, five players do, I think it'd be even better. So that's going to be a good countdown, something to keep an eye on all summer as well. Yeah, and the other the other coaching change we, sh- we should probably mention, excuse me, as I can't talk for a moment there, is uh, Wes Welker. Has gone headed to the 49ers, and so uh, he's it's it's wide receivers coach. He was an offensive assistant, so it's a slight upgrade on his on his status. But that that happened, and a lot of people were really really happy with the job Wes Walker is doing. Again, we we don't know that. There, I think there's a ton of projection when it goes, you know, like we've already talked about when it's something like that. But so he's gone. I'm not sure if we've named a replacement for him yet. Don't yeah, they yeah they they named somebody. I didn't know who he was at all though when I had it because uh, I wrote like a you know ten thousand words today about the Texans coaching changes that you can read at thealbertblog.com. But no, I mean Wes Wilker. I don't I I think they should have fired him because uh, Braxton Miller never became anything. And I feel <laughs> like that was the reason why he was hired. So good riddance. Get out of here, Wes Wilker. I guess he was just an offensive assistant, so T.J. Yates took his place, and John Perry's still the wide receivers coach. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, John Perry's the wide receivers coach here. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, well, well, that works out okay. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to add for the coaching stuff. I do wish uh, Mike Devlin got canned. He did it. He's still here. And really, it also is dispiriting, too, because Mike Munchak was available after leaving Pittsburgh. And now, like, let's not give him, like, $3 million or whatever it, whatever it would take to actually have that a really great offensive line coach is just stay here at the same guy who can't develop anybody except for Greg Manx and who always has his players play better elsewhere and free agents come here and they just suck immediately. So I'm glad. I'm really glad Mike Dell going to be here for another year. Yeah. I, there's no sarcasm with that at all. Zero. This is as serious as I can get. Yeah. Um, and the, the last bit of Texans news is that, uh, well, see, I didn't get to see it because Tyron Matthew blocked me on Twitter because he's a coward. And you can tell him I said that, too. 
you know, this, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, for the both, for the both of us partner. And he, I guess that's something along the lines of, yeah, I did it. I bet on myself. Woo. Here we go. And I really hope that means like he doubled down blackjack or something this weekend. And it doesn't mean that the Texans are talking about giving him a big contract to keep him here for another four years. And they want to give him like $5 million a year. That's fine with me. And they want to give him like $11 million or $9 million a year. Uh, I'm going to take back everything I said about Brian Gay being smart and liking him. And I can't wait until Rick Smith comes back here because that's probably going to happen one day anyways too. But that was the, the next bit of news. So what do you think? you think Tyron Matthews is going to end up staying here? Well, I mean, if you're reading the tea leaves from his tweets, and that's what it looked like to me because it's too early for other teams to be talking to free agents. We're in the uh, – in that, I can't remember the word I was looking for. Uh, the uh, non whatever phase where they can't go. Off. The non tampering. Tampering. Thank you. Yeah. But there's a so, legal tampering period, and yeah. then Frazier starts, and like all the guys are already signed three days ago. Yeah, and so um, it, it can't. I don't think it can be that. I, it's I, to me, it can only be that the Texans are going to resign him, which is weird. And and you're right. If we sign him for $5 million, we have enough cap space where that's not going to be a killer because it's going to be something like a four-year, $5 million a year with $10 million guaranteed or something like that. So it's not going to be a killer thing. But uh, we're going to be paying $5 million for the fourth-best safety on the team. It's kind of crazy for me. Yeah. I mean, I would rather see Krim Jackson like a two-year, like $16 million contract or even $20 million contract. And see Matthew get a four-year million, like a four-year contract at you know forty million or four years at you know twenty-seven million, whatever it comes out to be. Uh, just because Jackson actually has like legitimate skills, he does things that nobody else can do. Matthew is just kind of okay at everything and isn't great at one thing, and he's redundant at the other play of the other safeties that they already have on the team, and he's not good at one thing as good as they are at the other things that they're really good at. So I just, I just don't see the, the need for him and value for him. And I, the funniest thing I saw recently was like some Tyron Matthew like hype video from his season in 2018, the Texans. It was a minute long and 45 seconds of it was just him celebrating and screaming and banging his <laughs> chest and smiling and waving his finger. And the rest of it was just like, there's five plays in the entire video. And it was like that tip against the Browns, the free rush sacks, and then him catching interceptions after he goes off the running back's hands. So, yeah, that's the Tyron Matthew 2018 season. Uh, not a whole lot here, but he really makes you think like there's a lot there. Yeah, I just don't – yeah. I, I just file it under whatever. We'll see what happens. I'm not going to stress about something I can't control, but it just seems, like, unnecessary. Yeah, you know, I'm very stressed about it. My – you can land an airplane on my forehead with these wrinkles that are coming in because of how stressed I am about Tyron Matthew. And it also kind of reminds me of the – I mean, I can't believe I'm going to forget his name too. The all, It reminds me of AFC Defense Player of the Month point in Dems, you know. Oh, he's Defense Player of the Month. He has seven interceptions this year. He's good. He's not good. He just – you just think he's good because A.J. Boy is tipping interceptions too, you know. So I, I think we can be the, another experience here with Matthew, except Matthew's better, better than him. But it's just kind of like – it's a guy who's overrated, and it's just hard to tell because he plays safety. And, uh, you know, like from – and then he's also just good at tricking you into it, you know? Right, yeah. And I really think, you know, it's the other thing to add on there is just he's, he's going to have the Bob Sanders career curve. He's only got another season or two left, I think, anyway, just physically. So I just – yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back. We're going to talk about the Super Bowl 53, which is the L-I-I-I one. Uh, we'll be back in one second. Rhymes with lie. All right, and we're back. So the football game that happened, uh, so we both talked about how we didn't hate this game like a, like the rest of America did. Uh, did you eat any good food at all? What did you, you do for the Super Bowl this year? How did you so, take in the experience? Oh, my gosh. So, uh, last week was my son's birthday. He turned 16, so everybody in Austin stay off the roads. Yeah, did, you, um, did he walk outside with, like, a big bell and, like, a 98 Corolla or something? Oh, no, no. Nothing. We can't afford anything. Well, not only that, it's just 
it, it's so funny here in Austin, like wherever we need to go, it's actually shorter to ride your bike in most places than to actually yeah. get in your car. So it's crazy. Um, so, um, um, I made the best cheese dip in the history of mankind. So a friend of mine makes this cheese and onion dip with these big hunks of onions. And I married it with a jalapeno popper dip. So I added jalapenos and, and, uh, roasted poblanos and bacon and made a dip out of it. And it was the best thing in the whole wide world. And when I'm buried, I want to be buried in a vat of that. <laughs> um, two chains must be buried in the jewelry store. BFT must be buried in a vat of jalapeno popper, jalapeno dip, jalapeno cheese popper, penguins poppers. Dip. Onion. The onion is very important. And onion. And onion is full too. Yeah, so in that recipe, I'm always down to make some dip. I, uh, I went up to Austin also for it to, I guess, a party and say, except, you know, I'm, I'm sober and everything, not drinking at all and uh, which is fine. Just life's not as, as interesting. It's just things aren't as funny. But so I drank like two kombuchas, ate a bunch of carrots, ate, uh, ate some cheese dogs and sat on the couch and just you know, enjoyed the game. I think that's kind of part of the thing about the Super Bowl as well too is that it really doesn't matter if the game is as good. It's like an American event. It's, our, it's one of our national holidays. And uh, the game, I guess, is second nature to the fact that you have a country, 330 million people, all these different you know, shapes and forms and uh, everything else that goes along this big pot of soup we are. And, yeah, this one day we have everybody watches this game, even if they don't like football or not. And I think it's kind of like the, the best part of it. The game's always a plus, and I've been so used to have growing up with bad Super Bowls that even though this one when, when, when was like big scoring, as long as it was somewhat close, uh, it was enjoyable. So, yeah, yeah, again, I did have fun liking it, and uh, it was a good football game. Yeah, yeah I, I'm just not going to hipster this. I had, I had a good time watching it, and you know, the commercials, kind of, I was more disappointed in the commercials than the game, to be very honest. Yeah, I hate the commercials now, too, because they're all trying to be surrealist, and they're all really fast, and they bounce around to all these different things. And my brain is too slow. I can't keep up to it. Like, I watched a cartoon, like, three weeks ago uh, with my um, my younger brothers in my folks' house, and I couldn't watch it all. Like, SpongeBob is the most obnoxious thing I've ever seen, and it's just so fast and loud, and that's all the commercials now. There's no uh, there's nothing intricate at all about them, you know? Or they're, like, super sappy and... And it's either super sappy or not funny at all, or like you know, brands showing that they're people, you know. And it's all it's all bad. It's it's never gonna be good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have anything to add. Well good. All right, so let's talk about the game. So these two defenses. Uh, what did Los Angeles do to stop New England? And then after that we'll talk about what New England did to stop Los Angeles. I really felt like the key, I kind of mentioned it before, was just the play of the defensive line, especially. Uh, the linebackers also had a good game at Con. Uh, well, he had a couple of uh, poor plays in there, too. And then Littleton had a good game. I just really think they did a good job with the, in stopping what the Patriots have been able to do this year, which is run the ball and, and create a lot of plays off the run. So um, that's where they seem to have a lot of success this year with Sonny Michelle, especially in the playoffs with Sonny Michelle and, and White. And they were able to do a lot of things and to, to stay ahead of the um, ahead of the chain, like almost all game and stuff like or it felt like during the playoffs. And the other thing they did was they kept Tom Brady clean in the playoffs. And, and that's very important when you're a 58-year-old quarterback is you don't want them to get hit, right? And so they were able to keep Brady clean in the playoffs. They were able to rush the ball in the playoffs. They weren't able to do either of those things as well against the Rams. And to me, that's why the Patriots can only score 13 points, Big Matt. Yeah, I think – I mean, the biggest thing was that Los Angeles covered really well on the outside. So, I mean, the the Patriots still had a bunch of short third downs. They had third and four. They had third and six. And they had those sorts of third downs against Los Angeles and Kansas City early in the postseason. The difference was they converted every single time, and they kept the chains going. And against Los Angeles, like, I mean, they just – aside from Edelman being uncoverable, uh, they couldn't – nobody else could get open aside from Edelman. And then Gronk opened, you know, four times or whatever, but he was hurt. He's kind of more like a, you know, breaking case of emergency score player than a consistent offensive threat. And just nobody else was open. Dorsett wasn't open. Hogan was never open. Uh, Cordell Patterson was never really used in the passing game. And they look like they really missed Josh Gordon this one because they don't have another outside wide receiver. 
everything was just on the inside for him. And so just like facing third and six, you know, Brady had nowhere to go with the ball. And I think that was really the best thing that Los Angeles did. And it seemed like you're watching him live too. You, if you watch their defensive backs, they look like they're running man. And they drop off in zone. They did a good job using their outside linebackers to get outside, undercut those outside passes too. And then even, you know, covering the middle of the field, not giving up. That, that space between, above the linebackers and play action was really important too. And just the, there just wasn't a lot of guys open for Brady. I, th- I also thought the pass protection was good. It wasn't as good as it was earlier in the, off se- in the uh, postseason when he was only hit one time. But it was still uh, really good considering the defense line was up against with Sue and with Don. Yeah, and you're, you're definitely not wrong. I mean, they did play well against that front line. Again, to talk about what slowed Brady down, though, I think was having to face more pressure and facing, facing the interior pressure as well. I kind of talked about Fowler to me, did not have a good game. But there were many throws that Brady was not able to finish on because he had a player in his face. And, you know, you, you nailed it right on the head. Only one guy got open, and they couldn't cover. They couldn't have covered Edelman with, like, five guys. Like, he yeah. was turning uh, uh, Roby inside out, to leave inside out. They had no chance to cover him one-on-one. And that, to me, um, – they were able to slow him down a little bit more in the second half, but that to me was ultimately the difference in this game was was Julian Edelman, which is just so funky to say. Yeah, and like Edelman too is kind of a bad matchup against Los Angeles because he's an inside receiver. And I don't know why they didn't just put Tlaib in the slot whenever he lined up there because in the slot he was uncoverable. You know, they had him on linebackers and this sort of thing. And because he runs such short routes, you can't really bracket him. You can't really double cover uh, Edelman at all. He's also one of those guys that's really smart and good sitting between two levels of the zone. That if you do, you know, play one guy on each side of him or jam him and then try to force him somewhere else, he's going to find those spots. And, you know, him and Brady, you know, share, share bunk beds together, and he knows exactly what he's doing whenever he's open to. Yeah, and, you know, you talk about Tlaib, but even when Tlaib was matched up against him, Tlaib is not that kind of short burst kind of guy, whereas Edelman is. I, I don't think – I don't think Tlaib could have hung with him very well. You know, if you're going to hope that one guy can cover him, it's Roby Coleman, but, man, he was smoked all game. And he was bad. He's been bad all year, too. Like, Coleman's not a good football player. Yeah, so I was wrong about him a couple of years ago, um, wanting him to wanting to bring him in as a Texan. But uh, uh, the, the Edelman's ability to also read the defense and to create space between he – and anybody in the different colored uniform is simply amazing. It's just nobody was going to cover him on Sunday. Yeah, all of those pivot routes he runs. And like some of that, I think Tlaib could, you know, stop him at all. I just think Tlaib on the outside against, you know, Philip Dorsett isn't as good use as your resources as Tlaib on the inside against Edelman. We have a guy who's actually physical and can jam him a little bit too. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like Edelman had more – I think he had just about as many receiving yards as Goff had passing yards in this game. And I know he let – well, actually, that's not true. In the first well, half, he did. In the first <laughs> half, Goff had those kind of his longer throws, especially that last drive that was kind of garbage time also. But, yeah, I mean, Edelman to – you know, I like how he's such an angry elf as well with his beard and everything and everything. You know, he has hair coming out of his ear holes and all that. Uh, but, yeah, he was he was un- unstoppable in this game. He should have been the MVP and uh, – and he was like the one, you know, sore spot for Los Angeles' defense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so for New England on their defense, they, I like what we're talking about here with Los Angeles, it was kind of like interior pass rush. They struggle moving the interior of the defense because, you know, it's Aaron Dell and Dominic Sue. They come on the outside. New England's defense, like, there's seven different things that you can say about them where they create interior pressure with – you manufacture their blitz and loops and stuns. They played the ball in the air really well. Uh, they even were able to create De- Deontay Hightower is un- unblockable for a lot of the game as a pass rusher. Calvin always an excellent blitzer, which makes me so mad. They did a really good job passing assignments off. Uh, the Rams were able to create a lot of open throws to play action. They did a really good job at playing the outside wide and stopping the inside zone. Stuff became dangerous on the inside. And, like, I mean, they just did so many things perfectly on defense. And it's a defense that lacks, like, one incredible player. I think you can say Stephen Gilmore is as close as you can to that. But it's just, like, a, a good, solid defense that went from, like, being slightly uh, below average during the regular season to just being, like, a top-ten defense to end the year. 
and now doing things like holding the Rams to three points, which is just kind of absurd. Uh, what did you see New England do to stop Los Angeles in this game? I think you Nate. I also think that Todd Gurley not playing as much as he should have. I, I'm really question. Maybe he's he was more injured than we thought. Has you know just people in the crowd, but Todd Gurley is a dynamic guy, and he wasn't getting the ball at all on Sunday. He wasn't. You know, I think he had what three or four rushes. I don't think he was he, the ball. He had uh, Gurley had ten carries for thirty five yards. Oh, yeah, and one catch on two targets for negative one yards. And that was like yeah. a diving catch that he made. Yeah, and it would turn out to be a poor decision because he lost a yard off of it too. Yeah. I remember that play. No, it just he just seemed like totally invisible, and clearly I got it wrong. But, I mean, he had the one – he had like a 13-yard gain, which means the other ones went nowhere. And New England was very specifically uh, slanting the defense to take, over, uh, take away the zone run, the inside zone run. They were playing it perfectly, and it was like the Rams weren't prepared to have their game plan questioned at all. They were just going to be able to go do what they've done to everybody else this year. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also, like, you know, talking about the outside zone play, too, one of the things I kind of noticed is that on every single kind of like first and ten or, you know, those sorts of, like, obvious run situations or what the Rams like to run in or run play action off of, they would be, you know, make sure they have wide outside shades and they would just play on the outside shoulder and pushing those runs back in because whenever you're the running back run outside zone, you're looking outside gap and you kind of look look back through inside. And whenever you're playing that outside zone play like that, you're taking away his first two reads. And now he's looking back the other way and then you're just kind of sitting and playing a gap from there. Like there's just nowhere to go at all. And that's kind of the problem with the outside zone play is that if there's not any penetration, the defense doesn't have any penetration and uh, is able to just kind of hold gaps like that. There's just kind of nowhere to go at all with it, especially with your backside defensive end playing as well as they are too to take away the cutback. So, I mean, yeah, like they just, they're just, the, what the Rams do, they couldn't do. What they've done all year, they weren't able to do against Los Angeles with their you know outside zone attack and play action passing attack that they have. Yeah, I thank you for yeah. It's outside zone, not inside inside zone. Like I said, that to me was was ultimately the difference in the game because it really took away the effectiveness of the play action. And we've talked about how that the and that was the one one area where the linebackers for the Patriots played so well is they just weren't biting on the play action. They had success. The Rams did had success throwing the ball off play action, but almost every team does, right? It was the other things they couldn't do well. And they took away what the Rams do really well, the outside zone, took away Todd Gurley, who's probably their best uh, player. But the other thing they did is they turned Jared Goff into a pedestrian passer, which he is. And they forced him to win the game against them. And I think that was the right strategy to make because, let's just be honest, he's not the guy who's going to win you games. And the Patriots said, we're going to take away everything and we're going to let Jared Goff try to do a thing. Yeah. Yeah, and those are the things I talked about in the preview we did last week was that I wanted, I thought that Newton was probably going to force Jared Goff and be a drop-back passer. He's not a drop-back passer. He's a play-action passer. And if he's having to play on the shotgun, you know, face, you know, third and sevens. And, I mean, he didn't have a, he didn't have a completion on third down until the third quarter of this game. And if they're able to force him into those sorts of situations and make him run from the pocket, like, he's not going to. And as somebody who rooted for the Patriots when seeing them win this game, the main reason why is I just felt like Jared Goff isn't good enough yet to be deserving of winning a Super Bowl. And that was kind of the main reason why I wanted to see New England win. And they did exactly that by taking away the running game. Uh, by you know sitting on the play action and then forcing Goff to come from the pocket, he wasn't able to do it at all. And then you also take all the interior pressure they were able to create with Van Noy, with Hightower, with Weiss, with Flowers, with Roberts, and he was just you know he was he was awful in this one. I don't think pedestrian's even a good word for him. Uh, he was 19 for 38, 228 yards, sacked four times, hit 12 times, and even with pressure, he struggled throwing you know into and stepping from the pocket. Uh, and he, and he made some big mistakes downfield, too. I know the one that everybody will, will, will forget. I was going to say that everybody will always remember. We'll forget uh, three months from, or at least a year from now uh, was that big floater he threw to Brandon Cooks in the back of the end zone. And they also ran that really cool cover four beater. And he, they have a 35-yard pass easy there. He throws it deep down the sideline into coverage, and, and nothing comes from that play at all. So. So he had some chances here and there. He didn't. He didn't have. He didn't hit on the chances that he had. And just overall, it was like a, it was just a really bad game from him. 
Yeah, wouldn't it have been amazing? I mean, that game changes completely with Brandon Cook, with hitting Brandon Cooks, who's just get the ball close to him, and he couldn't even get the ball close to him. You know, one thing that really struck me about Goff this game, too, was he had no arm strength whatsoever. Like, he could not push the ball. He couldn't put it, put it into windows. He wasn't asked to do that all year. He had, you know, his wide receivers were getting wide open all year, so he wasn't asked to do that, and he couldn't do it at all during the Super Bowl. He just he, he doesn't have a lot of the physical tools. The guy who he reminded me of, Matt, was, was Matt Shaw. That he was just kind of an unathletic quarterback with middling arm strength, but Shaw at least had accuracy. Goff doesn't even have the accuracy. Yeah, I mean, let's say Goff has is more mobility than he probably gets credit for as well, too. I think the biggest problem with him in this game was even his arm strength, because I, I do think he has the arm, makes some really great throws. Uh, like, he could fit it into tight windows and that sort of thing. But I think his feet were just awful in this one just because of the pressure. He was constantly on his back foot. He was throwing against himself. Like, his, his, like, arm technique was like Cam Newton's, but he doesn't have Cam Newton's, you know. Uh, you know, rock slinging arm like he, like he, uh, like Cam Newton has. And I think that was kind of one of the problems that he had also. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it is, you know, there's a big difference between Cam Newton and his, and his thunder arm and Jared Goff and his, well, I'll be kind to not say Case Keenum arm, but Case Keenum arm. <clears throat> yeah. I remember I, I read Desert Solitaire again the other day, and in the very beginning of the book, he's like going for a walk and he sees a rabbit. He's like, you know, if I was dying, could I hit this rabbit with a rock? And then he throws the rock and accidentally kills the rabbit and he feels all bad. That's Cam Newton's arm. Jared uh, Goff's arm is like, he hits the rabbit in the head and the rabbit just has a little bump and then he goes on, on his day. Well, that was, I think Jared Goff's arm is better than you're saying, but Jared Goff off his back foot in the Super Bowl. Uh, that's how his arm was in this game. And that Cook's throw, you know, he is Cook. That, the problem with that Cook's throw was one, he saw it really late. Yeah. Like, Cooks is open for the entire uh, length of that route. And what hurt New England was Patrick Chung was hurt. And so they had miscommunication in that play. Uh, Cooks, Cooks runs a seam, he's wide open. Goff doesn't see it. He's watching, you know, he's staring at the left, left hand side of the field first. Doesn't see Cooks. And then when he sees him, like, he, like you mentioned, his arm string, he throws a complete wobbler. Like, it comes out of his hand, it travels like a spaceship, and then Jason McCourty was able to run from the – maybe it's Devin McCourty. I don't know. One of the McCourty's runs from the other sideline in cover four. It runs, I think, like 19 yards in two seconds, and uh, bats that ball away from Cooks, too. And also the interesting thing, too, is that it's Robert Woods. Maybe Woods makes that catch because he's a bigger, more physical receiver. But Cooks wasn't able to. And, yeah, I mean, that game is is a 10-3 at that point with you know, six and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter or so if he makes that throw and he doesn't, and uh, it really kind of kept the game the way it was. Yeah, that, that was it. That was it. And the other thing is, is, you know, Brandon Cooks could have made a stronger play for the ball. Because the one thing yeah. that struck me before, he, he didn't come back to the ball at all. He, he let it float and let McCourty get it. And, yeah, and Cooks also dropped the other touchdown pass in the end zone that you know, Goff threw a good pass to him, puts on his chest, but then uh, Cooks got hit high and dropped it. And Gilmore was tugging down his arm a little bit too. But that's a catch he could have made or you know, a bigger, stronger, tougher wide receiver like you know, DeAndre Hopkins makes that catch nine times out of ten, probably ten times out of ten. And Cooks as a smaller guy was unable to. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, yeah but DeAndre, I mean, that's like not even fair. That's like Comparing me to Superman, that's just not even fair. <laughs> I know. I just mean to do a Superman. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and like New England, one of the things that I kind of learned about them, you know, whenever you watch football, there's a lot. There's so many like small things that can be, that should be magnified. The people who are the really good, smart football people, like some of those things like really small and consequential, they kind of understand the importance of all the smaller things and how they can be magnified. And I watched like, it was like two summers ago, just on Twitter, they had some video they posted Matt Patricia in his defensive backs room. And he was just talking about how to play the ball in the air. It's like, see, he's beat, his back is turned. He's like, look at him, he's watching the running back's eyes and he sticks his hand up there in the last second. And it was just four and a half minutes of just going over, you know, New England's coaches film and then going over exactly how uh, they play the ball in the air and those sorts of things. And so the New England had, I think, like five pass breakups mainly because from that where you know, they're not, they're playing good coverage, but they're kind of beat and they're just able to 
uh, play the ball in the air, make a good play on the ball, and stop those. And that was the other thing that was impressive. I felt watching them in this game. Yeah. <laughs> Your dog wants some love. Oh, he's a cutie pie. So anyway, that, there's our dog, doggo vision for the moment. Yeah, yeah, we got, we got a dog in the house. Go away. She loves you. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um. Uh. I don't. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. Uh. Well, I guess the other thing I want to say about New England's defense too is I. I think I've talked about before, but Colin Van Noy being as good as he is is really disgusting. No, because he was he was so bad in Detroit. He was a second round pick there, and he was awful. And New England picks him up off the waiver wire. He was bad like the rest of that year there, and then he became kind of average. And now like. I mean, he had one of the best defensive, one of the best, like one of the like one of the better linebacker games you'll probably ever see in this one in the Super Bowl. And also, I like mentioned earlier, Deontay Hightower going from like a rangy, like middle linebacker can play from the center field to the sideline to just turning into like a pure like defensive lineman who stands up at linebacker has been something else like really kind of amazing to see too. And it's just super annoying how they can take anybody, make them their exact absolute best. And then they can also take somebody whose skills just change and find a way to make it work as well, too, even after all the surgeries and injuries Hightower's had. And, like, I really wish, like, I could join the Patriots organization because I think they could find out exactly what I should be doing in life, um, teach me how to do it, accentuate my skills and all my abilities, and just make me, like, the best I can be. Because they've done that to every single person who goes to that place. Except for Adelius Thomas, which is so weird that that never worked out. <laughs> And look at one guy in particular, and, you know, Lawrence Guy. I mean, just pick out one, that random dude, Lawrence Guy. Like, you knew who Lawrence Guy was back in college, right? And look how, like, effective he is in their scheme. He, they take him, they put him in a position to succeed, and he absolutely kicks butt week in, week out when he's healthy. And, and you look at some of the other, I mean, a lot of these guys are, like, cast-off type level guys, like Adrian Claiborne. You know, these aren't your superstars. These are guys that they find a role for say, Hey, you do this really well. Do it all game. Marcus flowers is a heck of a player, but I still think they even maximize him. So if you look at who these guys are and what they do with them, and it's like, this is why the Patriots are the best organization over the past 15 years is because they take their guys. They don't say, look, we're going to play this system. They say, no, we're going to play to your strengths and let you succeed on your own terms. And they do a fantastic job of that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so unbelievably annoying, and like I know, well, I still say that question for the end. Um, and like the last thing I was about New England's defense too, the one that surprised me was they put Gilmore and Brandon Cooks, and they kind of bracketed Robert Woods. And I thought they were going to do it the other way; they're going to put Gilmore on Woods and then bracket Cooks, and it worked out really well. They did a really good job covering both those guys how they did. And, uh, of course, it was differently than most people expected. And, of course, it worked out really well. Yeah, and Stephon Gilmore, he, he struggled last year. He had a very good year this year. He's a heck of a football player. He was a great signing for them. And, and he's, you know, if you have a bunch of these role player type guys, you need to have a couple of guys who can play really well. And I think Stephen Gilmore, Stephon Gilmore is one of those guys who does that for you. I've yeah. always liked him. Yeah, I mean, he was a big, like, overpay in free agency. And, like, last year was like, yeah, they're stupid for giving him that much money because he makes, like, $14.5 million a year. Uh, and he got, beat, he got beat deep a lot in Buffalo, too. He got beat deep a lot uh, last year. And, again, like, this year he's not getting, beat, not getting beat deep a whole lot, and he's in the Patriots system for, you know, over a year, and he becomes, you know, a top-five cornerback instead of what looked like an overpay, which was an overpay last year. Look like an overpay two years ago, and yeah, just go to New England. They'll they'll figure it out. They'll make you exactly what you're worth, no matter what. Yeah, and you nailed it. He's a top five cornerback this year in the NFL. Yeah, it's annoying. All right, so we're gonna take one last break, and when we come back, we'll kind of talk more about the individual offense players in this game. And we're back. So I know you touched on Todd Gurley earlier. I want to talk about Todd Gurley a little bit more. You know, he brought up his numbers, 10 catches for 35 yards, one catch on two targets for negative one yards. Uh, this is a guy who had, like, 16 touchdowns through the first, like, nine week, weeks of the season. Was incredible not only at running the ball but catching the ball as well. And he was the main driver of the Rams offense. who had the best run offense in football. Uh, I think they had the third best offense by DVOA this year as well, too. And – 
the entire postseason, like the Dallas game, he had 12 carries, averaged like seven yards a carry, whatever it was. Didn't do anything all against New Orleans, was benched in that game. But he looked healthy against Dallas. He looked healthy against uh, lost, uh, against New England in the Super Bowl, but he just didn't get the playing time. So what do you think was up with Gurley in the postseason from that Dallas game on? Do you think he's hurt, like he re-aggravated something? Uh, or do you think this is just kind of like he wasn't feeling it and they didn't play him because he wasn't playing that well? I don't know. It, to me, it had to have been injury because it, it, the, the, the hook was too quick for it to be anything else but the injury. And they'd been talking about he had an injury. They'd been talking about he might need an all-season surgery. So it, for me, it had to have been that. But he's the best player on that offense, and so it had to have been something extreme for him not to get the PT. Yeah, and also I also wonder how much of it as well, too, is just like he doesn't play. You know, they kind of stop playing at the end of the year, and a running back is such kind of like a, a field position. Like you're getting hit a lot. You have to get used to that. You have to see the hole. Things have to kind of slow down for you. And you go from you know, tailing off in the year with your injury and sitting out and try to ramp back up for the postseason that quickly. I just think he kind of like also lost his touch and kind of his feel for either rushing attack as well. Even if he was injured or even if he wasn't injured, I think they kind of seem to play into it as well. Yeah, it had to. And, you know, it's not like Anderson was bad down the stretch subbing for Gurley. You know, if, if you're uh, McVay, you're, you're like, hey, Gene Anderson's putting up 167 yards against teams. I, I'm happy to throw him out there. But it's still it's different because Anderson's never going to be the receiving threat that Gurley is. Yeah, and I mean, Anderson had one good game this postseason against Dallas. He wasn't that good against New Orleans. They showed run the ball against them. He showed run the ball in this game as well, too. And the other thing surprising me about this one was how poorly I feel like Los Angeles' offensive line played. Like, they never miss blocks because of communication errors. They don't make mental mistakes and allow free rushers. Uh, that happened consistently against New England this game. And also, like, just watching it, they had a lot of guys in the backfield. Like, Danny Shelton had tackle for a loss. Uh, they were, you know, which is something that shouldn't happen at all. Uh, and rarely has ever happened in, in uh, his career. And like they were just and, like you watch them come back to the huddle, and the huddle, they're constantly talking to each other, and they just were on the same page. And this was the offensive line that played probably the best game you'll ever see from offensive line against Dallas, who had you know really good running defense this year, put up you know 200 plus rushing yards on them, uh, who had a good game pass blocking against New Orleans the week before. And like this one, they just weren't themselves, and it was really surprising to see. Uh, did you see anything specifically regarding Los Angeles' offensive line? Uh, I think you nailed a lot of things. What I saw is I, I – and I will admit to feeling like I'm wrong on this one, but what I saw is that they really did not know who was going to be rush, rushing the quarterback or who was actually going to be, you know, even run blitzing. Is that they couldn't figure out – because they were, they were, especially in third downs, the Patriots were standing a lot of guys up, so people are coming from all over. And I think what they did is, is the Patriots did not stick to what they've done during the season. They did things differently. So whereas they might have said, okay, there's three guys over here. I'm expecting these three guys and one guy from over here. They were mixing up their schemes as to how to get to the quarterback. And I think that's why the communication was so bad is the offensive line was never able to figure out who was coming from where because everybody was coming from something different. There was one specific um, – uh, uh, sack that I think should ended up in a sack or uh, Dante Hightower come in, came in completely untouched on a stunt. And, you know, that's not something you expect from the Rams offensive line. You expect them to be able to slide and, and pick up those sorts of things. But they were getting, there were too many times when the uh, Patriots uh, pass rushes were just completely unabated the quarterback because the Rams could not communicate what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were really fluid. And uh, even Hightower had, like, an inside rush move against Blythe, which, like, I still can't get over. Um, and I think the other thing, too, the great pressure they did was they had those delayed blitzes from the linebacker position where Kyle Vandoy doesn't come right away. He waits for them to turn and deal with the twist in front of him. And now you're, you're turning this way, you're doubling the one technique who's just kind of sitting there. And now Kyle Vandoy has an entire hole in the interior to rush through. And with Goff, and Goff's the guy who, like, he needs his first two reads open. He struggles after his first two reads. And that's how losing Cooper Cup was so big this year that he lost, you know, that, that third guy, that safety blanket. And his numbers between the two uh, with, Coop, with Cup healthy with him injured just really kind of spectacular also. And so he can't, he can't look past that second read. And then there's, you know, Kyle Van Noy. There's Deontay Hightower. There's whoever they're blitzing on the interior, you know, 
wide open right from the space also. Yeah, I'm still shocked that Tyler Higby didn't get, you know, it, it, Tyler Higby is like turning into the um, Jesse Tannehill of tight ends is because every year we expect him, Ryan Tannehill, Jesse Tannehill was a pitcher for the Pirates in the 1900s. Uh, <laughs> he's turning into a Ryan Tannehill, like a prospect, isn't he? It's like every year he's going to break out, but Tyler Higby never breaks out. Yeah, yeah, he's going to be 32 and still be an interesting tight end. Uh, yeah, whenever you say a player, I don't know who it is. They just assume it's some, like, baseball player from 1973. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, Tyne is literally from, like, the 19-aughts. Like, I think oh, okay. Like, gotcha. 1912, yeah. <laughs> That's not even hyperbole. Okay. Um, and so, like, one last thing on the offense. There was one really good offensive play this entire game. And, like, I mean, like – New England started the game with some good power rushing. They ended the game with some good power rushing. And I think the one thing they did well uh, with their rushing attack was by running off tackle. Those like tight toss places they those tight toss plays they ran worked really well. Um, they did a good job kicking things out wide whenever they were pulling. Their power you know worked well. Lee worked well, especially whenever they got their guard and uh, James Devlin up on Mark Barron. Like Barron can't play against the run against you know, Joe Thune and Andrews and Shaq Mason, Devlin, and they did a good job, you know, making that one block and picking up four yards, six yards, and they sprang some stuff deep to in the game as well, too. Uh, but the one spectacular play that was made was that throw. Brady made to Gronkowski in triple coverage to put them at the one-and-a-half-yard one line. One, that was a really great throw from Brady because, like, it's right in the perfect spot. The safety's coming over. It's right ahead of him. It's right past the linebacker. It's high enough for anybody to make a play on it. And also Gronk, like, stretches his arms. He, like, the linebacker's in his face, turning and running after him, and he stretches his arm past him to make the catch. He slides down one knee, and then they run the ball in on the next play with Michelle, and it's 10-3, and it's the ball game at that point. And, like, it's weird, too, because I feel like there weren't a lot of really great defensive plays in this game, and there was one great offensive play, and yet it's still kind of like a defensive showdown that way, too. But that's the one play I'm really going to remember from this game is that they're a brave mate to Gronk, and, like, that's all he needed to do in this one, was just that one throw, and he made it. And isn't it just, like, the perfect Tom Brady kind of – Tom Brady and Gronk thing to do is just that one pass to seal it. When that play happened, my first thought was – and not only, okay, that's ball game right there, but my, my – I guess my second thought was that was just so perfect. I mean, this is the game. Maybe this is when Gronk needs to retire because that's, like, peak Gronk. I mean, that's, like – what else is he going to do? What else does he have to prove at this point of his career? He's hurt. He's banged up all the time. Just seal it with a Super Bowl win, making a play like that. And just like, this is your highlight. You just put that highlight. This is, yeah, this is my career right here. You did stop me. Nobody could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the touch on that throw was so nice too. And like Brady wasn't, he got better at throwing the deep balls of the year. Like as he had kind towards the end of the year, whenever his arm came out of nowhere, whatever they did to you know, shoot up his arm to make that happen. Like, he throws with such touch now. And it kind of reminded me of, like, Pan Manning during, like, his end of his career where he only made, had to make three throws a game. And they were always just, like, fit. That, it was always just those corner routes. Like, and he was just throwing a great touch, throw the ball in the bucket, and that's what that throw was from Brady. He made another one to Gronk as well, too. And so a lot of these games, whenever you play against a team who has a great defense and a great rushing attack, it's like the quarterback needs to make three good throws to win a game. And Brady needs to make one. He made that throw. And they threw a bunch of wild from passes to Elman. That was kind of it. And so, like, yeah, like, you know, that's, that's New England. That's how they did this year. And they completely turned their team around from the way it was, like, the first nine weeks of the season to the way they played the last five weeks. And, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's incredibly annoying, but that's just the way it works, you know. It's what the Patriots do year in, year out. Hey, we sucked the first half of the season. It's time to ride us off. Oh, no, we went. We just ran the playoffs in your butt. It's just, it's, it's old. I'm tired of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to see somebody new. At least the AFC was better this year where they had to beat three good football teams this year. It wasn't like the year before they beat Tennessee in the divisional round and they'd be a Jaguars team who would even let Blake Bortles lose the game for them. And then they lost to Philadelphia, of course. But like, this is actually more one of the tougher playoff runs, runs that they actually had to have instead of just, you know, making it to the AFC championship game by default. Yeah. Yeah, I'm done. I'm ready for somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I know me too. And in this game specifically, the one play I'll remember from it is that throw that he made to Gronk. 
Uh, like last year, the one play I will remember about that Super Bowl was the Derek Barnett force fumble that you know ended Brady's chance to actually have a game-winning drive. But that's the play from the scan that's really going to stick with me. All the other stuff I'll forget, you know, in eight months by the time the next season starts. But I'll remember that throw to Gronk for a long time. Yeah, and I guess my play, I don't know if I've really got one. I, I, I think that if I had one, it would be the Cooks uh, dropping the ball in the end zone after McCourty hit him because that was your entire opportunity to, to win that game. And like you said, there's really only one great offensive play. There weren't really great any great defensive plays. So that's the one that stands out to me. That, to me, you know, you Cook catches that ball, it comes back and makes a play on the ball rather than being so passive on it. That's the game changer for me, and it didn't happen. It didn't turn out that way. So mine's a negative, which is kind of weird. Yeah. yeah and that play, it reminds me of Derek Jeter's stupid little flip against the Oakland A's in 2001 or whatever it was. Just like some miraculous come out of nowhere, make a great play, sort of play. And uh, I like this one more than the Jeter one. That one really hurt my feelings, and I was a baby. <laughs> you were. You must have been, what, three? No, I was like 11 or something. I don't know. But I really like that A's team, though. Um, and so I guess my, my last question is it, well, I guess my, my, the best, the best defensive play was Stefan Gilmore's force fumble where CJ Anderson punched him in the oh, face, yeah. where the ball went out, bounced and didn't count. But I think that was the best defensive play and that one will get lost to, uh, to time like Coney Ely Super Bowl against the Denver Broncos in 2015 that nobody will ever remember, but he had like three sacks and a force fumble and was unblockable. And now he's even in the league, which is weird. Um, but next year after the Super Bowl, how do you think – what do you think about these two teams going into next season? Do you see the Rams falling off and not making the playoffs? This type of thing that tends to happen for teams to lose the Super Bowl. And are you expecting New England to be, you know, right here again next year as Brady goes for seven, I guess, and <laughs> goes for his, you know, 10th Super Bowl appearance or 11th or whatever it is? Who cares, you know? It's not very interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, as far as the Rams, um, you know, once again – the Patriots have written a book on how to stop their offense. And it, teams are going to be able to adjust it. We talk about it all the time. The NFL is a copycat league for a good reason. So McVay is going to have to figure out something to, to adjust his offense to how defense is going to play him now. Uh, it, I think the defense is still going to be spectacular. They've got a lot of talent on that defense, and a lot of it's going to still be around next year. So I think the Rams are still going to be in it. They're going to have another tough battle with the Saints. And, of course, the Cardinals, who I fully expect are going to win at least 11 games behind Josh Rosen next year. That was a joke. You know, I, like joke. The, you know I still like the Cardinals. They're, they're my favorite bad team. I picked them on the, a, the NFC West last year. I didn't like the Rams. And I told you all, I told you the Rams weren't that good. I told you all year long, going back to August, and here they are. Here's the real Rams, you know. The real Rams. Yeah, they only made it to the Super Bowl, but they suck. Um, yeah, they suck, man. <laughs> And then um, uh, as far as the Patriots, I don't know why you wouldn't expect the same. I don't think Gronk's going to be back, but I could see I could see them signing another dude like uh, Edelman who takes a lot of pressure off the outside guys. And if Gordon comes back next year, I just don't expect anything different from, from the Patriots. I, I'm not going to until Belichick, Belichick is gone because he's just he, – he's, he's so good at what he does. Yeah, it's like the next seven thing where you just expect them to be in the title at a minimum. Uh, I mean, I think the thing with the Rams is they went all in on this year. I think Peters is a free agent next year. Even though he – I've never seen a, a defensive player who hates tackling as much as he does. It's yeah. really it's really awful to watch. Sue's a free agent after that, you know, one-year $14 million contract he signed. I think Fowler's a free agent. They have Donald. Um, but their defense, I think they're going to lose a, a lot of those guys going into next season. And they also don't have a lot of draft picks because they trade their draft picks to bring other guys in, including Cooks, including uh, Tlaib as well. Or I, I think they trade for Tlaib. I know they traded for you know Marcus Peters too. And then next year, like, like you mentioned with their offense, I think their offense will be good during the regular season and postseason when the question comes in. But yeah, Jared Goff needs to make the next step as a passer in the pocket instead of just being a wide-open play-action quarterback. Uh, Daddy tells me exactly what to do with the ball before he gets to the line of scrimmage because the play clock shuts off after 15 seconds. And without that, you know, mentoring and guidance, he doesn't know what to do at all. So, yeah, I'm expecting New England to be here, but I'm expecting Los Angeles to have a drop-off. I'm still – I still think they'll probably win, like, 10 games or so and kind of have a year kind of like how uh, the Eagles had this year just because they don't have the resources. They went all in this year. 
And then there's going to be things that come along with this, also especially getting as close as they got, not winning tends to win a team the following season too. Yeah, and then there's the Wade Phillips effect that the longer he stays with the team, the worse their defense gets. Yeah. Yeah, he needs to go somewhere else. He needs to go to, like, Jacksonville. Actually, that's not true. He doesn't need to go to Jacksonville. Come to, come to San Antonio coach the coach the Commanders. Oh, my gosh. And wear a starter jersey. I'm excited for oh, that. I was wondering if there was going to be a reference to that today, and you came through. Well, I was thinking about it just because I got an email from – I don't know how they have my email, but from Ryan from the site – uh, about lines for like over under win totals, the lines for the American uh, Football Association, whatever it's called. I was like, who would gamble on this? Like, nobody knows anything about these teams. Yeah, it's like the San Antonio is expected to win a six and a half games this year. Like, well, I don't know how or why you gamble on it, but it's there, and the season starts this weekend. And like I said, I'm for sure going to go watch Christian Hackenberg play in San Antonio because that's something that it's like seeing the white whale, you know. I, I, and it's a whale I don't want to see either. <laughs> I can't. I can't wait to see him in person. <laughs> I've never seen him throw a football before, so I'm excited for it. Um, but anyways, that's our show for tonight. Uh, I would say goodbye forever, but we're not saying goodbye just yet. We're going to do a show this Thursday, which is like an NFL season awards show, and then we'll be doing the same type of show with the same format next Tuesday with uh, Die Hard Chris as well and you. And we're going to give out Texan season awards and do a Texan season review. Now that football is finally over and dead and all we have left to do is think about the future and the past because right now is a, it's a footballless world. And so, yeah, that's a, so that's our show for tonight. Make sure to listen on Thursday and Tuesday and also read the side as we, as we continue and, and uh, beat on against the, the current of the offseason. Woo!